Thank you for that introduction, Calvin. It's a great pleasure to be here uh, today. Thank you for Kathleen for organizing this wonderful event. Um, I uh, like doing these. This is a, a, a time of year, the turn of the year, in which it's traditional to look back on the year past and uh, reflect on events and to, to look forward as well um, to contemplate what the new year might hold. Um, I think I can guess what many of you are most interested in about the year ahead, but I, so I'll warn you right off, I'm not going to have anything to say about the prospects in 2013 for the Ravens or the Redskins. That's not part of my talk, nothing to say about them. Instead, I'm going to focus um, on the economic outlook, and um, for some that might be a little less interesting than pigskin pro prognostication, but it's probably going to be good for us to turn our minds from sports for a minute. Before I begin, um, I need to emphasize that the views I express are my own, uh, not necessarily representative of others uh, on the FOMC or within the Federal Reserve System, but you probably figured that out from my voting record last year. <laughs> I'll begin with the outlook uh, for inflation, and this isn't the traditional approach to these economic outlook talks at which uh, some comments about inflation are usually tacked on to the end. At times like, you know, times now where growth is a concern and people don't seem to be agitated about inflation, some, talking about inflation might seem like talking about liturgical colors, to borrow from Governor Keating's expression, but um, I do this just to emphasize, and I've been doing this for a while now, just to emphasize that price stability is really the Fed's primary mission as the nation's central bank. Over the last 20 years, I think the Fed's done a commendable job um, on inflation. Uh, the record is that inflation's averaged 2%, very, very close to 2% for 20 years. Now, there have been some year-to-year -year fluctuations uh, for sure, but these temporary swings have, have ironed out over time, and that inflation has always tended to return to around 2%. In fact, inflation's averaged very close to 2% since the end of the Great Recession uh, in June of 2009. Overall, inflation has subsided of late, um, led by the recent easing in energy prices. Headline inflation was just 1.4% on a 12-month basis at our most recent reading. That was from November of 2012. But the same measure of inflation was 2.6% in November of 2011. So that's a good illustration of the type of short-run swings we see from year to year around a trend of 2%. Futures markets are forecasting flat or declining energy prices, and given that, many economists expect headline inflation to average just a little less than 2% this year, and I concur with that uh, outlook. The record of low and stable inflation over the last two decades is a substantial improvement over the previous uh, decade's experiences. The Federal Open Market Committee, or as the FOMC, this is the body within the Federal Reserve System that's responsible for monetary policy, issued a very important statement in January of last year on its longer-run goals and policy strategy. In that document, the committee stated that inflation at a rate of 2%, as measured by the price index for personal consumption expenditures, is most consistent over the longer run with the Federal Reserve's statutory mandates. This formally committed the FOMC uh, to what Fed watchers had long believed was the FOMC's implicit uh, target of 2% inflation. Now, a formal commitment to a numerical objective for inflation is important for transparency and for accountability. 
but it's also important for keeping expectations regarding future inflation well anchored. We heard a little bit about that on the panel this morning, because doubts about whether the Fed will keep inflation low and stable can themselves give rise to inflation pressures. And history has shown that restoring our credibility can be a costly, arduous, tedious, uh, and very difficult process. Fortunately, current measures of inflation expectations suggest that consumers, businesses, and investors anticipate continued stability of inflation in the years ahead. These measures include some survey-based indexes, as well as gauges of inflation expectations derived from uh, the differences, the relative yields of indexed and non-indexed uh, U.S. Treasury securities. And each of these measures has its own sort of peculiarities, but they're all providing readings consistent with the low and stable inflation rates that we've seen over the last two decades. Now, in, in contrast to inflation, real economic growth and labor market conditions are affected by a wide range of factors that are outside of the ability of the central bank to control. In fact, the effects of monetary stimulus on real output and employment are less than is widely thought. They consist largely of transitory byproducts of frictions that delay uh, the timely adjustment of prices by businesses to changes in monetary conditions as they emerge. Attempts to overstimulate real economic activity via monetary policy can instead run the risk of raising inflation. Indeed, for reasons that I'll discuss later, I see material upside risks to the inflation outlook in 2014 and beyond given the current trajectory of monetary policy. Although, as I, I should emphasize, my baseline outlook for inflation is for it to move towards the, the Fed's long-run goal of 2% in coming years. Turning to the outlook for economic growth, since the Great Recession officially bottomed out in the second quarter of 2009, economic activity has expanded at only a modest pace. Real gross domestic product, this is our best, broadest measure, most comprehensive measure of economic activity, has risen at an average annual rate of 2.2% since the end of the recession. This pace is widely viewed as disappointing since it falls short of the average growth rate of real GDP of 3.5% that the U.S. economy achieved over the course of the 20th century. Virtually the entire shortfall represents a difference in the average growth in employment. Uh, in other words, the growth in GDP per worker is a measure of productivity. Productivity growth has been about the same as it was in the 20th century. Um, it's just that employment growth is lower. Typically, one would expect growth to exceed the long-run trend during an expansion in order to make up for those times contractions in which negative growth is recorded. Several factors appear to be impeding a more rapid expansion of the U.S. economy, and I'm going to discuss these in turn. First of all, the housing boom uh, created a substantial oversupply of new homes, and significant progress has been evident, but we still haven't completely worked off that oversupply. Thus, home construction and home prices were essentially flat for the first two years of the recovery, but last year housing activity picked up and was a source of modest strength for the, the economy. Prices in many markets bottomed out, began to rise, new construction activity has been steadily improving. Having said that, my sense is that there still is a substantial overhang of homes that are a poor match for what consumers really want and can afford right now, and thus I don't think we should expect 
nor do I think we should desire a return to the booming housing market conditions that we saw just prior to the last recession. A second related factor that is um, behind the slow recovery is the significant shift in economic activity away from industries related to residential construction. A rapid loss of jobs in these industries um, layered on top of ongoing longer run sectoral shifts resulted in large inflows into the ranks of the unemployed and it resulted as well in an adverse shift in the composition, the skill composition of the pool of unemployed that the labor market has to deal with over time. Now this often occurs in recession. Generally in recessions you've got some uh, labor resources and capital, they're shifting from declining sectors to other sectors. Um, and uh, it, it occurs because the, you need capital investment and retraining in order to facilitate that shift of, of workers from one sector to another. The magnitude of the decline in residential construction jobs, though, in this recession was unprecedented um, in U.S., at least post-war history. So this effect is likely to be significantly larger, a uh, significantly larger factor for the economy to deal with now. Third, this recession seems to have made many consumers more cautious and less willing to spend relative to their incomes and wealth. The magnitude of the decline in jobs and aggregate income in the recession was far larger than anything American households had seen in the previous 25 years. And it was accompanied by an unusually large decline in housing equity and uh, household net worth. Moreover, given lenders' experiences following the last recession, the terms and qualification standards for both secured and unsecured consumer credit have become more stringent. Thus, households understandably have become more apprehensive about their future income prospects and more interested in paying down financial obligations and building up savings. So while consumer spending has grown steadily uh, during this recovery, the tempered pace of that growth has limited the overall pace of the expansion uh, relative to historical experiences. Finally, our fifth district co uh, contacts Fifth District goes from Maryland down to South Carolina, includes almost all of West Virginia. Um, our contacts have long been emphasizing that uncertainty about the configuration of uh, policy uh, parameters that affect them has caused them to delay hiring and investment decisions. These reports became more frequent and intense this past spring, and they became more focused on the uncertainties associated with the fiscal cliff. If you think about it, it's, it, the way I think about it is not just a matter of confidence, not just a matter of the atmosphere or the general attitudes involved. If you think about the array of fiscal policy, policy remedies that Congress and the administration could turn to to address the fiscal cliff or more broadly the broad fiscal imbalances we, we face uh, that Governor Keating was so eloquent about, the range of tools to remedy that are things that affect all of us. Marginal tax rates, uh, benefits, spending, um, both on the defense, non-defense side. Um, so it, it makes sense that a lot of economic decisions are affected by uncertainty about things that affect the bottom line, that affect the calculation of whether a given hiring or investment commitment is going to be profitable or not. And as a result, in response, businesses just express a preference for being on the sidelines rather than taking the risk. But apart from ambiguity about how Congress and the administration addressed this fiscal cliff and the, the debt ceiling that's coming up, 
even if we get past March, there's going to be significant uncertainty remaining. There are longer run tax and policy issues uh, that, are, that need to be solved, and it seems relatively unlikely that those are going to be solved uh, by the end of March. Broad regulatory realignments are in way, and the outcome of those is still in many respects uncertain. And the prospects for Europe, for example, um, are uncertain as well. So there is some uncertainty that's going to weigh on the economy, even if we got this fiscal cliff and the debt ceiling behind us. So in short, a range of factors appear to be restraining our pace of economic expansion. While that pace is, is well below the, the long-run average of the U.S. over the last century, it's not hard to identify potential explanations for that shortfall. And in fact, if you look at other advanced economies and how they've typically behaved following recessions that have involved large housing slumps, you'll find that the current U.S. expansion is not out of the ordinary in statistical terms. So this economic expansion, while disappointing, may be the best we should expect given the large decline in the housing market and the nature of policy challenges we face right now. The data we've seen over the course of 2012 has been consistent with this picture of an economy expanding at a moderate pace. Last year, this time, growth appeared to be strengthening and measures of output and employment were noticeably picking up pace. But in late spring and early summer, growth appeared to slow as business investment and exports flattened out. The reluctance of businesses to invest persisted into the fourth quarter, uh, but some of that slowdown in job growth that we saw over the summer was later revised away. Uh, and now it looks like more of a steady pattern of growth over the, in jobs over the course of the year. Early readings on consumer spending for the fourth quarter have been encouraging. Those survey measures of consumer sentiment have fallen sharply, um, perhaps in response to the post-election media focus on the fiscal cliff negotiations. The modest um, strengthening in residential construction, though, has continued into the last half of 2012. Here in Maryland, the economy also continues to expand, but at a more modest pace than in the nation as a whole. Employment growth over the year ending November, for example, was just six-tenths of a percent, less than half the national rate of 1.4 percent. The difference seems to be attributable in part to weakness in the government sector, which is obviously overrepresented here in Maryland. We continue to see solid growth in the professional and business services sectors, reflecting the growth in technology, and within the state uh, and in health services as well. And it's got some comment in the earlier session as well. Unfortunately, job creation in other sectors in Maryland has been flat or declining over the past 12 months. And the state's unemployment rate, though, is below the national average at 6.6, considerably below the national average of 7.8, as reported this morning. And that reflects the highly educated and skilled Maryland labor force. But it, it's still, that unemployment rate has declined only a tenth, where it's, it's come down almost a percentage point for the nation as a whole, reflecting, as, again, the sluggish pace of, of improvement in labor markets in Maryland over this year. Because of the extensive federal presence here, Maryland's economy has been in the crosshairs of the fiscal policy debate. And it's fairly clear that this caution has had a dampening effect on economic activity and has contributed to the relatively slower growth we're seeing in the state economy. Having said that, though, we continue to hear more promising reports from contexts within the technology, health services, and manufacturing sectors where the demand for workers with the right skill set remains high um, and where some positions go unfilled due to a lack of workers with the appropriate skills. 
As for the outlook of the U.S. economy, uh, my best guess is that growth will continue into next year at an annual rate of around 2%. Uh, and many recent impediments um, to faster growth, I think, are going to continue to restrain activity through this year. Beyond 2013, that rate of growth could rise if the effects of these restraining factors ease, and that seems plausible to me. Meaningful progress on federal budget issues, particularly the long-run imbalance that must be addressed, would alleviate some of the policy uncertainty that appears to have dampened growth in 2012. The risks emanating from Europe could diminish next year as they emerge from recession and make progress on uh, changing their institutional arrangements in a way to make them more sustainable, which is they're working on, and improve European growth prospects in 2014, which many economists are forecasting would be a positive for U.S. exports. I think U.S. households uh, could well be, become more confident and better disposed to spending a year from now. Improvements in the effectiveness of labor markets in matching workers and jobs uh, could lead to gains in household income and, and optimism. Modest additional growth in home prices along the lines we saw in 2012 would add to household uh, net worth and would, would aid that deleveraging process that was talked about this morning as well. And all these developments would continue uh, to tend to reduce consumer apprehension um, about downside risk, and that would tend to bolster spending. The outlook isn't without risks, though. Significant energy price increases or some unexpected downturn in some major trading partners' spending um, could temporarily reduce U.S. overall growth. Failure to resolve a significant measure of uncertainty over federal tax and spending policy would indefinitely prolong the reluctance of businesses to commit to investment in hiring in the U.S. Moreover, even with a resolution of fiscal uncertainty, the significant uncertainty is going to remain regarding regulatory policies, and that could continue to dampen growth as well. On the other hand, stronger than expected resurgence in confidence is not inconceivable. Rapid and convincing progress on, towards fiscal sustainability, for example, might release a, a rush of pent-up spending, perhaps leading to above-trend growth uh, that has so far eluded us. Even though growth has been below our long-run trend rate since the recession and may re remain below trend for some time, I have to emphasize that I believe the fundamentals behind U.S. economic growth remain quite strong. The flexibility and resilience of our markets, along with a, well, a relatively well-educated populace, make this an advantageous place to implement innovations. One sector where this longer-run strength in our economy is evident is manufacturing, where growth during the current expansion has actually been fairly strong compared to the decades leading up to the recession. The backstory in manufacturing, of course, is the global outsourcing of low-skilled operations that's occurred over the last several decades. But we've seen countervailing growth in cases where locating domestically has significant advantages. For some suppliers, for example, proximity to downstream operations is critical. The auto industry is an example. For others, proximity to key research and design personnel is important, as with advanced manufacturing that uses more sophisticated uh, techniques and capital equipment. In addition, the emergence of new, inexpensive energy resources in the U.S., I hear and I have in mind the, the great shale bed regions, could support additional cost-effective domestic production in industries that are heavily energy dependent or rely on petrochemical feedstocks. 
So our major challenge over the long haul, besides the fiscal challenge, I don't want to minimize the fiscal challenges that Governor Keating talked about, but our, our major challenge is in finding effective ways to deepen the knowledge and skills of our people. Expanding our human capital is fundamental to improving standards of living because implementing new technologies has generally required a more skilled workforce. In this arena, an array of strategies could yield beneficial returns over time from ensuring the continued vitality of our institutions of higher education and research to investing in high quality early childhood education. I think particular attention is, is warranted to career and technical training, which can provide flexible, market-responsive skill development, both for new entrants to the labor force and for workers transiting from declining to expanding industries. What role does monetary policy have to play in this outlook? As I said at the outset, our primary responsibility at the Federal Reserve is to keep inflation low and stable. This allows businesses and consumers to make economic decisions without worrying about the purchasing power of the dollar. My economic outlook presumes that the F1C will not allow monetary instability to disrupt economic growth the way, arguably, it did in the 1970s. But beyond avoiding the economic damage associated with high and variable inflation, I think it's unlikely that the Federal Reserve can push real growth rates materially higher than they otherwise would be on a sustained basis right now. Nonetheless, at its December meeting, the FOMC adopted measures to attempt to bolster economic growth. Notably, the committee decided uh, to continue the monthly purchases of $40 billion in agency mortgage-backed securities and $45 billion in long-term U.S. Treasury securities. It also underscored its attention to real economic activity and employment uh, by stating its forward guidance for interest rate policy in terms of a 6.5% threshold for the unemployment rate. I dissented uh, from these committee actions and have expressed my concerns at great length elsewhere. Briefly, for you, as I touched on today, I think that further monetary stimulus is unlikely to materially increase the pace of economic expansion, and I believe that these actions are going to test the limits of the credibility of our commitment to price stability. At some point, we will need to withdraw monetary stimulus by raising interest rates and reducing the size of our balance sheet. And the larger our balance sheet, the more vulnerable we will be to seemingly minor miscalibrations of policy. Accordingly, I see increasing risk, given the course that the committee has set, that inflation pressures emerge and are not thwarted in a timely way. I intend to remain alert for signs that our monetary stance needs to be adjusted. In closing, though, let me reiterate that despite the unique natures and the challenging uh, aspects of uh, what faces us in monetary and fiscal policy right now, the U.S. economic fundamentals remain strong and augur well for growth prospects going forward. To me, this suggests that the rewards are high for getting economic policy right. And as economists, I have to believe uh, that people, even policymakers, respond to incentives. Thank you very much for your attention. I believe we have time for some questions, if you have any.
Who wants to go first? And you're all probably going to ask about the ravens, right? Anibani answered all your questions for you? Oh, Anibani's got a question. Anibani will break the ice. For a long time, we've been hearing that the goal of the reserve is a target of roughly 2% top-line inflation. And yet, very recently, the last few weeks, in fact, we've heard something different. The goal is more like 2.5%. Would you tell us what the real goal is and what that 2% means and what the 2.5% means? The real goal is 2%. Um, I, I can swear to it. I was there. Um, so let me, let me be clear about where this 2.5% came from. Um, so I alluded to the fact that the, the committee uh, restated at its December meeting its forward guidance about interest rate policy in terms of a numerical threshold for unemployment of 6.5%. Specifically, so you remember that before that, we used to say that the committee ex- anticipates that economic conditions are going to warrant exceptionally low interest rates, meaning interest rates near zero, short-term interest rates at zero, near zero where they are now. Um, So before August 2011, we said anticipates the economic conditions will warrant uh, exceptionally low interest rates uh, for a considerable period. And then in August 2011, we said till mid-2013. Then we changed that in January to a later date, I think uh, early 2014, and then it's moved, moved more recently to 2015. And um, the committee is very co- uncomfortable with that. Uh, some, had, had some bad properties. I don't, I don't think it was. Commun- I don't think it co- did the job of communicating to the public the, the extent to which policy was going to depend on how the data came in. So people think it, we were locking in a promise to a certain calendar date, come hell or high water. Forgive my language here. Um, so uh, the committee was anxious to convey the extent to which. Policy is really dependent on how the data is going to come in. It could be sooner, it could be later. Um, so they, they adopted this um, uh, language. So the, the basic idea is to emphasize that depending on economic conditions, um, we think it's going to be low as long as economic conditions warrant. And here's a sense of what the economic conditions are that are going to warrant raising rates, under which we would raise rates. And until we see that, we're not going to raise rates. Now, um, I personally favored using qualitative language, saying, you know, until we see substantial improvement in labor markets, um, and as long as inflation's under control, or something to that effect, we're going to keep rates low. I think that would have done the job. The committee was instead adopted these very explicit numerical objectives. So, and so the 2.5% comes from that sentence. First part of the sentence is, um, until the unemployment rate falls below 6.5%. So the idea is, you know, until unemployment rate falls by another, it would be like 1.8%, or 1.3% points. Um, and, and, and it added a, a clause on there. So instead of inflation is under control, it said, you know, and as long as the committee, the, the projection for inflation one to two years from now is within a half a percentage point of our 2% goal. So that people added a half a percentage point to two. We knew you would do this. 
and came up with and realized you'd come up with two and a half percent. And that's where the two and a half percent number comes from. Now, the the reason it's there is that, um, you know, as I as I emphasized at the outset, inflation tends to fluctuate. It gets hit with shocks. And, you know, a good monetary policy performance is one in, uh, in which you're always expecting inflation to trend back to 2%. But it might not get there in 12 months. It might not get there right away. So this is to give us a little wiggle room so that as long as everybody's expecting inflation to subside back to 2%, we're okay. We're hunky-dory. So there's an extra part after the, t the half percent thing, which said, and, and inflation expectations are well anchored. So that's a reference to the indexes, the indicators I was talking about that by which we sort of gauge market expectations about inflation. We have these measures that are they're called break-evens from the Treasury yield curve. The Treasury issues regular debt where, you know, if you buy it and inflation goes up, you're hurt. And then it, there, there's debt that's indexed for inflation. And you can compare the yields on those two and get an implied inflation rate at which you break even buying the two pieces of debt. And that's sort of an implicit forecast for inflation. And we like to see those close to 2%. And they've been within the range that they've traded within for the last 10 years. And so right now, it looks as if inflation expectations are pretty well anchored. Um, in addition, there's some consumer things. So even if we're forecasting inflation to, to come back to 2%, if markets aren't, there's, gonna, there's, some, there's a problem there, and we know we have to address it. So that's a, that's a good threshold. It's a good set of tripwires, but I personally don't think it's tight enough. I, I personally was uncomfortable with that because the experiences we had in the 60s and 70s in which inflation uh, sort of whipped away and got out of control, at all points along that path, people expected inflation to turn around and come back down again. So it just kept surprising us on the upside again and again. So it, it's not clear that this would stop, that, that this would trip in a circumstance in which inflation pressures emerged but didn't quite yet affect expectations or forecasts. And so I have in mind a situation like, uh, um, you know, growth picks up. Let's say growth goes to 3%. Um, but the unemployment rate hasn't gotten down to 6.5%. That could happen if, for example, um, a pickup in job growth occurs, but that draws a lot of people from out of the labor force back into the labor force. And as uh, many of you may know, uh, the labor force has contracted significantly after this recession. A lot of people have just given up looking for work and are out of the labor force. Well, if labor market conditions got tight again, we could see them come back into the labor force that might keep the unemployment rate from falling at a time where growth was picking up. And if you look at the economics of, you know, what do interest rates have to do, when growth picks up, they have to rise, whether or not the labor force grows a lot or not. So that could emerge. Um, banks are sitting on huge amount of excess reserves. And so they, they could come to the conclusion that lending opportunities are emerging and they should take advantage of them. They should, lend, they should try and reduce the amount of reserves they hold and can shift into loans. But the banking system as a whole can't get out of holding all the reserves we've pumped into the system. They just go around and around. Somebody's got to hold them. The only way for the system to equilibrate is for the bank balance sheets to get bigger, which would require growth in deposits, so monetary assets. That creates the inflation pressures that, that push inflation out of control. And that's, that's the, the scenario that I worry the most about in this. And I want to be sure that we have the tools. We, we've communicated well enough so we feel prepared 
to act to nip those in the bud because this record of two decades of good inflation performance was built on us nipping it in the bud uh, time and again, reacting to incipient inflation pressures before they emerge. Um, I'll point, I know this is a long answer to a question, but I'll point to February of 1994 as sort of a key turning point. That was the first rate increase in 1994 after the recession of 91, 92, jobless recovery. People were worried about the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate, the FOMC thought the unemployment rate was 7.1% and they tightened policy in February of 94. They did it because, and inflation wasn't out of control. Inflation was coming down. It was, it was in a pretty good zone, around 3% on the CPI, lower on the PCE. Um, and they raised rates. And that was the first sustained preemptive tightening. And that's what cemented our credibility under Greenspan in 94. And that's what laid the groundwork for inflation that was below 2% for, for over 10 years and, and has been 2% for 20 years straight. So. Um, thank you for the opportunity, the opportunity to elaborate. Um, you know, I, if you asked me about the Ravens, I'd have less to say. That's all I can wrap up with. Uh, my question is about the question earlier about, for the panel about fossil free. And for Mr. Keating's comment earlier, we probably as an industry, my had the most sustained level of opposition to Battle Three that I've seen and have been successful in getting that reconsidered. What is the Federal Reserve doing to analyze the impact? Because we see as an industry is going to restrict investment in the lending of our balance sheets. For consistency's sake, we can't just go to the public side from a profitability standpoint. That money has to go to the loans. So from our standpoint and from moving forward for sustained growth, that can be sustainable for us in the industry to have to deal with those kinds of capital pressures. What's the Federal Reserve doing to look at it? All right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not close to the project, but there, there, are, um, there are analysts that are, are you know, sort of pouring over um, the effects of Basel II and, and, and re-looking at that. I, um, the, the, the Fed's very well aware that um, the banking industry is uh, uh, very differentiated, that there are a lot of different types of players with different business models, and crafting a single capital standard that can be applied in a way that makes economic sense, that balances uh, the costs and benefits of higher bank capital across the whole range of the industry. It's a, it's a difficult cat to skin. You just got to admit that up front going in. And uh, they're very, you know, we're very concerned about getting it right. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm kind of not in a position to be able to comment on any of the, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of it, but um, it's something we're very aware, aware, aware of. Broadly speaking, we've, you know, we've come a long way since '09, uh, when I think everyone realized that um, a substantial sort of transformation or uh, re-engineering of um, the, the banking industry and its and its regulatory environment was was warranted. Um, Dodd Frank was a part of that journey. Uh, regulators' response, supervisors' response, was a part of that journey. The industry's actions, even you know, apart from our prompting that they would have taken anyway has been a part of that journey as well. Um, the capital positions have improved substantially. Um, a lot of um, 
problematic lending practices have been have disappeared of their own accord, sometimes for regulatory reasons, sometimes not, just because they didn't make economic sense in hindsight. Um, and um, we've gotten to a much healthier place in banking. But we're, this journey isn't complete because it, it's, it's not clear that the industry is at a place where there's a, you know, a line of sight to a sustainable uh, rate of return on invested capital. Um, personally, I was talking to Kathleen about this. Personally, I would have expected more um, M&A activity over the last three years than we've seen. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, I think that some of the accounting impediments deserve to be looked at um, to that kind of consolidation. I think that um, uh, I think that regulators have a long way to go to, uh, to um, establish a regime that provides uh, for the kind of financial stability that um, our people deserve from our financial system. Um, I think that um, we've, we are a, far, a long ways away from having a dress too big to fail. Um, and um, uh, so I, th I think we have a lot of work to do. Uh, my, you know, my, my positive, optimistic scenario for the banking industry is that um, a pickup in growth that occurs at some point when it, when it might occur, I don't, I'm not sure, but a pickup in growth to the neighborhood of 3% will generate more new lending opportunities, more business opportunities for banks, and they'll, they'll find there the ability to, to widen margins on some key customer segments um, that are bank dependent, for which the, the, there are less good substitutes. And the customer segments you have for, that have a lot of good substitutes, like money market funds, you're not going to get margins from them. You're going to get the ones that are uh, that have fewer fewer sub margins of substitution to work on. But that those opportunities to widen margins, um, to to gain the return on the capital that the banking needs system needs to be healthy. Uh, will show up at a point where growth uh, returns to more uh, sort of normal magnitudes. In the meantime, it's a excruciating sort of waiting game, and I know that um, uh, you know just from talking to bankers on our board and contacts we have around the district, I know uh, that it's it's a very challenging time for the banking industry. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.